Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, What is the Church? Many think of the church as a building or organization, but scripture teaches something far different. The church is the community of God's people who gather for worship, love, and care for one another and serve God's purposes in the world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. Uh, we're going to be looking today at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. It's a very familiar passage of scripture. You've probably heard it at many weddings. Uh, today we're going to talk about what the passage of scripture is ultimately actually about. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. And you can read along, it's there in your booklet. So hear now the word of our king and our bridegroom. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. A play that I uh, really love, I've read multiple times, is uh, William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. And in the play, Julius Caesar, you know, early on, it's kind of the buildup to Caesar actually being assassinated. And then in the wake of Caesar's assassination, everybody's wondering what Mark Antony, Caesar's close friend, is going to do. And Antony stands up, and in words you, you may not remember from having read them, but you've probably heard them just quoted, or oftentimes they even kind of used in a parody. He begins, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I have come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. And then Mark Anthony proceeds over the next number of minutes to, in essence, slowly but surely praise Caesar. And to slowly but surely give a speech that while initially you thought he was actually going to be supporting the assassination of Caesar, it ultimately turns to a very different purpose. And by the end, the assassins realize they're in big trouble. Antony uh, has actually turned the entire crowd back towards Julius Caesar in this speech. Now, Antony was using a little bit of subterfuge there, but 
I bring it up because I'm reminded of that when I look at Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And what I mean by that is, Paul begins with straight directives towards husbands and wives. But his real point that he comes to later in the text is to say, this isn't really ultimately about husbands and wives. It's actually ultimately about Christ and the church. And then he ends, you know, with this, well, but, but nevertheless, you husbands and wives need to do this. So somewhat like Mark Anthony, Paul gives a stated purpose. He kind of begins one way, but as he moves through, he's making a far deeper point to try and turn our hearts towards this true point. Now, this is um, the, the second part that we're looking at and where we're going through some catechism questions, and we're looking at question 70 for a few weeks. And in question 70 of our catechism, we ask the question, what is the church? And we're looking at these metaphors where the answer is the church is the body, bride, and temple of Christ, the community of all true believers for all time. So last week we looked at the body. Today we're going to look at the bride. and We want to ask ourselves, what does it mean when we say the church is the bride of Christ? We've all heard that. We may all reference that. But, but what are we supposed to draw away from that? When God tells us we're his bride, what does that mean for you and for me? So let's dive into the, to the passage. Now, as I said, the question is, because most times when we hear this, and most times that this is taught, it's taught regarding family relationships. And so we're going to look at this passage about marriage. And on one level, Paul is speaking about marriage. Notice in verse 22, he says, wives submit to your husbands. In verse 25, he says, husbands love your wives. And then he concludes it in verse 33 by saying, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Um, and Paul is in fact giving household instructions from chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through chapter 6, verse 10. He's speaking to a typical Roman household and telling everybody in that household how they ought to relate to one another. And the first and longest and most important of these sections is 522 to 533, and it's about husbands and wives. And it is important for us to understand that this passage is maligned a lot today. This is a very unpopular passage in the scripture today. Uh, it's deeply misunderstood. People really don't understand what this passage is actually teaching. Very often, the people who hate it because of what they think it says to wives would actually love it if they understood what was being said, particularly what was being said to husbands. And if a, if a husband actually understands this passage, you will never quote it. Because it's, in essence, your death warrant. That, that's what it is. It's your death warrant. That, so, so not a passage I refer to very often in the house. Uh, it's, it's like a criminal holding up his wanted poster and saying, yes, I'm wanted. I have to die. Um, so it's a misunderstood passage, and it does deal with it. And I would encourage husbands and wives to actually think through this passage, to look at it, to meditate on it. I'm not going to be speaking about it here today. I am in After Hours, which I'll be recording in just a little while. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. I am going to talk a little bit about what true marriage is and what we learn from marriage in this passage. But today we're going to look at what Paul wants to say is the actual central point. 
Whether or not there was human marriage, there is a deeper understanding Paul wants us to get at. And in fact, it's that deeper point upon which everything about husbands and wives is actually based. Just like we saw last week, the church, uh, as the body of Christ, is not based on the human body, but rather the way the human body operates is based on the way God's body, God's church, actually operates as the prior, deeper thing. So it is here, the deeper point is about Christ and his bride, the church. Now, why do I say that? Notice in verses 23 to 27 how Paul roots everything in the relationship between Jesus and the church. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives um, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And so notice, every instruction Paul gives to wives and to husbands is rooted in the prior relationship of Christ and the church. And he keeps going back to what that means. So wives learn their responsibilities not by looking at the culture around them, not by speaking to some other person who propounds to be an expert on marriage, but rather by saying, well, what is the relationship between Christ and the church? And how does the church respond to Christ? Husbands don't learn their role and responsibility by watching Hollywood movies, by asking their buddies in the locker room what they're supposed to do. Rather, they are to consider, well, how did Christ act towards the church? How does Christ act towards the church? That is to be my model. And in fact, if you notice here, it's not just that Paul's kind of saying this is the model. He really says this is the ultimate point. He does a very surprising thing in verses 31 to 33. Notice Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And if you know your Old Testament, you might be saying, Yep, that's a great verse. That is the first marriage, Adam and Eve. Great verse, Paul. And then Paul says the strangest thing. In verse 32, he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul, probably, I can imagine if I were one of the Ephesians and got this, at that point I'd have been like, what, can you read that again? Are you sure you read that correctly? Because Paul's saying, look, Genesis 2.24 is ultimately a pointer to Jesus and the church. And apart from that, it would lose its meaning. Once again, God did not cast about and say, I wonder how I could describe my relationship with my people. You You know what? Human beings down there are getting married to one another. I think I'll use that as an example. In fact, Paul says, no, it's the opposite. There was a relationship between God and his people, between Christ and the church. And Paul says, I want you to understand, marriage was always, even back in Genesis 2, 24, when that was first stated, it was ultimately about God and his people. And so the real marriage is between Christ and the church. 
And human marriage was given to be a physical, visible reflection of the deeper, older union between God and his people that's going to survive into eternal ages. Because not only if you consider why Paul says it's more foundational, Paul's saying when Genesis 2.24 was spoken, it was already about God and his people because Adam had existed as the people of God before Eve even existed. But you can also reflect, Jesus has told us when we go forward into eternal ages, I'm no longer going to be married to Linda. She hollers amen. I say I'm not too sure if I like that. But that's the way it's going to be. My human marriage will not survive into eternal ages. But the relationship between Christ and the church will. In fact, it's the point of it. So, so the relationship between God and his people preceded human marriage. It's the foundation of human marriage. It defines human marriage. It shows the way we're supposed to be. And it will outlast human marriage. So in every way you can say, okay, Paul, I'm starting to see what you're saying. This is a profound mystery. It really is about Christ and the church. Think about that. You know, next time when you're sitting at a wedding or something, we, we, have, we have drifted so far, we make it all about us. But friends, it's not, especially for a Christian marriage, it is all about Jesus and the church. And this is one more visible representation of the eternal union between God and his people. So if that's the case, what are we meant to learn from the fact that the church is the bride of Christ? That scattered in this field right now is actually the bride of Christ. How are we supposed to learn from it? Well, number one, we learn that God's people are his bride. This isn't something Paul just came up with. It's actually throughout the scripture. I'm going to run through a number of verses really quick. Uh, where it runs from the Old Testament all the way to the end in Revelation. So, for example, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, uh, God says to his people, I will betroth you, that was the old word for engagement, to, to bring into a marriage relationship. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Now, the entire book of Hosea, if you read it, Hosea had to marry Gomer, and what was Gomer? She was a prostitute. This is one of the times that the prophets had to scratch their head when God said, Hosea, go take Gomer the prostitute to be your wife. And in fact, after Hosea does, she keeps being a prostitute, she keeps wandering from him because God says, I'm wanting Israel to understand, and you're my chosen instrument, Hosea. This is the way Israel is. My people are being unfaithful. And so, Hosea, you have to keep going back to Gomer. Even though she wanders, even though she's unfaithful, you are going to keep going back to her, and you're going to keep bringing her back. You're going to keep taking her back to yourself because that's the way I am with my people. And my people need to understand. They may be unfaithful. I am faithful. They may turn away from me. I will pursue them with an everlasting love. Because that's who I am. Moves on. In the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes, 
for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Isaiah is writing, and in this section of his prophecy, he's speaking to the people who are going to be in exile. And notice he roots it all the way back to creation again, just like Paul does. It's your maker. It's the one who scooped you out of the dirt and made you. He is your husband. That's what it means to have him as your God, is he is your husband, you are his bride. Ezekiel is speaking to the people who are already in exile. And in chapter 16, the entire chapter is God recounting to Israel their history. And he takes them from the time of their birth, and as they're growing up, and how nobody had wanted them, and they weren't his people. And then in this parable, he says in verse 8, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, in the parable Israel has grown up and is now of marriageable age, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. This was a way in the Old Testament to spread the corner of your garment was a statement of marriage. You can read about it in the book of Ruth. Ruth goes to Boaz and she says, spread your garment over me. It's a reference back to this. It means I want you to take responsibility for me. I want you to be my protector. I want you to care for me. That's what it meant to be a husband. And God says, that's what I did with you, Israel. You were laying there and you were actually naked in the parable under the tree. And I spread my garment over you. I took you and made you mine. And then notice he continues. I gave you my solemn oath. I entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Now we're going to come back to that phrase a little bit, but that's marriage language. God said, I married you, Israel, not because you were worthless. You, you, you were laying under the tree. You were, you were naked. There was a, but I spread my, the corner of my garment over you. I brought you to myself. I gave you covenant vows. I gave you a pledge, and I became yours, and you became mine. If we move to the New Testament, we can see in Revelation, if you go all the way to the end, we see where this goes into eternity. In Revelation 19, we see the picture of Jesus coming back, and he's on the white horse, and he's triumphant. And part of that is he's coming back to conquer, you know, and to exert his lordship. But part of it is he's the bridegroom riding in on the horse, coming to receive his bride. And so notice in Revelation 19, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But notice what he says here is, at the consummation, the whole end of human history is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because that which God has spoken about, that which has been there since Genesis, is now coming to fruition. And in fact, in Revelation 21, as we see the new heavens and the new earth, we read this in the first three verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, I could bring up other verses and passages, 
But you can see that this is an old, long thing. Paul didn't just come up with this in Ephesians. It had been there. The idea also underlies again in the story of Hosea. You can read about it in the book of Proverbs and in Ezekiel 16. When God's people are unfaithful, he calls it adultery. Because the relationship is you are my bride. And so there is no other way to reference it other than adultery. Books like Ruth, while certainly telling an actual story and showing us the line through which Messiah came, are also a picture of what marriage is supposed to be. And it's a picture of God and his bride. His bride that was foreign. His bride that was seemed to be bereft of hope. And God reaching out and bringing her to himself. Song of Solomon, while clearly an erotic love poem, that is what it is. But the background to that is the relationship between God and his people. And so even when you hear the covenant motto, which we read there in Revelation 21, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, we should hear the marriage overtones like in Ezekiel. I'm bringing you to myself. You are mine. I am yours. This is not just some kind of an ownership thing. Rather, this is actually God saying, I brought you to myself. You are my bride. I give myself to you. I am your husband. This is a deep principle that runs through the word of God. Now, why does it matter to us? Maybe we say, okay, well, so we're part of the bride of Christ. And that might be something you struggle with. I find the body easier than the bride. This is what I, I have to wrestle to wrap my head around this, this understanding a little bit. So what does it mean? What difference does it make? I want to give five quick implications of this for us. Number one, because the church is the bride of Christ, Christ loves the church. And he cares for her needs. Paul says this directly. Notice in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So notice here in verse 25, Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let, let me say something to you. There is a sense in which it's true that Jesus came and gave himself for sinners. He gave himself for the world, and that's true. But if your only category is that, you're missing part of the truth. Jesus came for his bride, the church, and he gave himself for the church. He loves the church with a special love. Make no mistake, I love everyone here. I love Linda differently. Jesus loves humanity, even lost, God-despising humanity. But make no mistake, he loves his church. And he came and he gave himself for the church. We were lost we were away from God. We, we had no worth. And he gave himself for us. And that continues. That's not only past tense. It's a present tense reality. Notice in verse 29, Paul continues, says, uh, After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, 
just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his own body. Do you notice the two metaphors we've talked about being mixed together here? And Paul's putting it, though, in a present sense. He says, look, Jesus didn't just love you in the past. It's not that, well, he summoned it up, and on Calvary's tree 2,000 years ago, he loved you for that moment in time. He loves you. He feeds you. He cares for you, not just then, but now. Every day, every moment of every day, tomorrow you will wake up and you will be loved. You will be cared for. You will be fed. Because Jesus Christ has given himself to declare and to do that for us. So friends, no matter what you or I may feel, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can be certain you have never been unloved. Your father and mother may have forsaken you. Your friends may turn away from you. The whole world may despise you. You have never been unloved. From all of eternity, before you existed, God loved you. You are his chosen you are his bride. That should be the foundational rock of your identity and mine. It does not matter what the rest of the world says. God declares he loves me. That's my identity. That is my reality. And know that, again, he has given himself for you in the past. He cares for you right now. And he will keep and care for you all the way into eternity. You will never be unloved. Eternity past, present, eternity future. That's what it means to be the bride of Christ. Secondly, Christ is working to make the church glorious, full of beauty and holiness. Notice Paul tells us here in this passage, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to. That word to there in the Greek, it's a, it's a word henna, it's a purpose clause. This is why Jesus gave himself up. This is the reason. In order that, in order to make her holy. That's why Jesus has given himself up for us. He did not just save you and me so that we could stay unholy. He did not save you and me so that we could continue to wallow around in sin. That is not his goal. He loves the church so much. Notice Paul tells us in verse 20, uh, continuing in verse 26, he cleanses us by washing with water through the word and presents her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's how Jesus is working to view us. And so this means that the church must be filled with the beauty of holiness. Holiness is, see, when I say beauty of holiness, in our culture, that's almost an oxymoronic statement. We don't like holiness. We, we think of holiness as harsh and judgmental. Holiness is beautiful because you were not made for sin, nor was I. And the, and the picture here is you know, we, we, got a, we got a text yesterday. Uh, my granddaughter, Stephanie's daughters, 
saw mud outside and decided that looked like a lot of fun. Do you remember that when you were a child and mud looked like fun? Uh, as opposed to when you're a parent and it looks like a lot that's got to be cleaned up, right? They got out there and they rolled around in it. Now that's fun for a seven-year-old or, you know, a young child. Who thinks that would be appropriate for a bride? Right before the music's playing, here comes the bride is playing and she runs outside and jumps in the mud puddle and rolls around. Anybody think that's a good idea? Renee, you do weddings. You ever see a bride go do that? <laughs> the, the whole point, she's trying to look her most beautiful on that day. Paul's telling us that's what Jesus is doing with the church. We, we come to him in the state. Make no mistake, we are covered with worse than mud. Jesus is cleansing us, and he is making us pure. And notice he specifically does it, we're told. He washes us through the word. By the word of God, Jesus is washing us. He gives his word to the church so that she will not be seduced, so that she will not be deceived by the shifting standards of this present world, but will be formed by God's unchanging will and God's unchanging word. Beauty is holiness. Holiness is beauty. The two always go together. And please hear this. Jesus loves the church so much. He loves you so much. He loves me so much. He will not leave us in our sin. He's going to see it, and he's going to send his word, and he's going to cleanse it, and he's going to purify it, and he works to do that through his word. Jesus is on a mission to purify the church. So those two are not against one another. It's not, well, he loves me, but he also is trying to purify me. It's because he loves me, he is purifying me because sin is destructive. Third point, the church has to submit to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Notice again in verse 24, he's been giving the instruction to the wives. He says, now as the church submits to Christ. Notice Paul does not say, now the church is supposed to submit to Christ. And so also you wives ought to take... No, that's how he says. He says, I'm telling you wives, this is what you're supposed to do, but I take it as a fact. The church will submit to Christ. To be the church is to submit to Jesus. Jesus is our husband. He is our head. He is our Lord. And we are called to willingly and gladly submit ourselves to to him. And we submit ourselves to the Jesus who is. Not the Jesus I want to be. And friends, every one of us have the Jesus we would like. I have the Jesus who will ignore those parts of me that I really don't want changed. Not the Jesus who says I love you too much and I'm going to go after that and we're going to dig that sin out because it's destructive to you. The real Jesus is the Jesus we submit to. And that means all other submission, all other obedience is relative to that one. We want to submit and obey governing authorities, but it is always relative to our submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. That is ultimate. 
And by the fact that we carry that allegiance, if you carry that allegiance long enough and strong enough, there are going to be people who are going to test that allegiance. That is going on in the church in China right now as we were praying for them last month. To be faithful and submitted to Jesus Christ is for them to uh, be come under fire from the government. But the church can't say, well, I'm not going to submit to Jesus any longer. We must be submitted to him. That actually leads to the fourth point, which is the church has to be faithful to Jesus. Underlying Paul's instructions here, of course, is that marriage is supposed to be faithful relationship between one man and one woman. But Paul specifically brings this out in another passage. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul writes to the Corinthians who've been wandering. They've been, they've been not submitting. They've been giving in to false ideas and philosophies. And here's what Paul writes. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you're supposed to be faithful to Jesus. You're not supposed to be like Gomer was in the early parts of the book of Hosea, running around and giving yourself to whoever, but you Corinthians seem to think you're supposed to be acting like Gomer. The whole point was don't act like Gomer. That's what you're not supposed to be. You are supposed to be faithful to Jesus Christ. That means you are to uh, embrace, not reject the call to holiness. You have to, you have to put away the sins. You can't be embracing your sins and vices that are contrary to God's eternal law, which was specifically what was going on in Corinth. You remember, there was all kinds of sexual immorality. There was all kinds of greed. They were taking each other to court. Uh, they, they were in you know, rebellion and breaking the church apart. And Paul says all of that is you being unfaithful to your bridegroom. And so he's reminding them, his call back to them is, remember, you're the bride. The bride of Christ is supposed to be faithful, not committing spiritual fornication or adultery. Now, hear me, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but I believe... We are all, probably most of us here, are going to get the chance to test our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Okay? Whatever else is going on, our culture, wake up and see this, our culture is on a bent. Unless we have the third great awakening, and I mean the third great awakening. I mean something of the, of the stature of the Reformation. Unless we have that, the ark. And the bent is not going to be stopped by political machinations. It's not going to be stopped by this or that or the other. It is bent against God. It is bent against righteousness. It is bent against people being faithful to Jesus Christ. And to be faithful to Him is going to bring down upon your head wrath and problems. You may not be allowed to have certain jobs. That, that is not unusual. We act like that's never happened before. That's actually been typical for Christians through much of history. We've been restricted by all kinds of things. From the earliest days, there's always been just a pinch they want you to burn to Caesar. We've lived in a nice time where we haven't had to do that. But, if I can see into the future, and I'm not a prophet, but I believe I'm accurate... That time is going to come, and it's going to be increasingly difficult. But the church is the bride of Christ. 
We don't have any. It's not like, well, well, what's plan B? There's only plan A. And plan A is faithfulness to Jesus. And faithfulness to Jesus and submission to Jesus means if you're telling me to disobey Jesus, if you're telling me to say things that are not true, if you are telling me to applaud unholiness, I can't do that. And if that's the price, then I'm going to have to pay that price. That's the reality. So that's kind of a sober word, isn't it? I mean, it's not easy. I know we're not all going to jump up and shout, hooray, bring on the lions. But this is the reality. Last thing that comes out of this is if the church is the bride of Christ, I must love and honor the church as Jesus' bride. Again, notice Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. I, I've mentioned before that the quickest way to get on my bad side, I, I have acted in very unholy ways when I felt like people were disrespecting, dishonoring, or in any way threatening my life. I, I have gotten myself in trouble because I, that was the quickest way to get my sinful nature flaring up and say, you will not do that. Whether it was my children or some dummy in Washington, D.C. one time that did that and found out just how angry I could become very quickly. Now, I did it sinfully, okay? But, yes, it's true. My, my wife, was she was always worried I was going to get shot. But I was not putting up with that because I love her. And I do not brook disrespect towards her. Friends, Jesus does not brook disrespect towards his church. He loves the church far more deeply than any husband here loves his wife. Jesus loves the church. And he gave himself up for the church. Does the church have flaws? Yes, she does. She, she has had flaws all along. She has had failures. But we must love her, speak well of her, pray for her, and honor her. Period. Not popular today. It's very popular today to, I love Jesus and I just disrespect the church. It's, it's Jesus' followers. That's unbiblical foolishness. We must love the church. There's a song called The Church by a man named Derek Webb. He was one of the leaders of Caveman's Call, and in a solo CD he had this song, and I'm going to just read a few of the lyrics. This is sung uh, from Jesus' perspective. I have come with one purpose, to capture for myself a bride. By my life she is lovely, and by my death she's justified. I have always been her husband, though many lovers she has known. So with water I will wash her by my word alone. So when you hear the sound of water, you will know you're not alone. Because I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. Friends, that's biblical truth. If you love Jesus, you will love the church. That is 
the truth that God wants. Because, see, here's the flip side. Of this. I've been telling you, Jesus loves you. And he does. He loves you individually. But he loves the church. And I can't say, well, it's just me and Jesus, and I don't need the rest of this. Okay? I've said it. I will continue to say it. We're a pain. We are. But we're a pain that's loved by Jesus Christ. We're a pain that he has given himself for, that he loves, that he feeds, and that he does not brook disrespect, dishonoring, and putting off. He says, that's my bride you are talking about. And so to love him, we must love the church. So how do we apply this? And then we'll come to the Lord's table. First, I do want to encourage you before I even jump into it, if if you're here, if you're listening, if you're not a believer, I want to urge and encourage you to respond to Jesus. Be part of what we're talking about today. Jesus is a good, good Lord. He is a good one to be known as his bride. I want to urge and encourage you with everything in me. This whole passage, notice, is Jesus giving himself, Jesus dying, Jesus' blood being poured out, his, his body being broken, the very things we're going to represent here in a moment uh, at the Lord's table. All of that is a pointer that we become part of the bride of Christ through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That is the only way in to be part of this. So I urge you, if you're here and you've never done that, look to him, come to him. Hear what we do at the Lord's table and respond in faith. But for those of us who are believers, what does it mean? Well, it's a simple question. Do I understand what it means for the church to be the bride of Christ? See, if we think of the church as purely a human organization, we're going to get off in trouble. We're going to get off into a ditch. Because the church is going to disappoint. The church is going to fail. But... The church is not just a human organization. If we think of the church as only a human organization trying to do good and to carry out God's will, we're missing it because the church is first and foremost. We are the bride of Christ. We are his people. Should we adorn ourselves with good works? Well, in Revelation it said, yes, the, the, the linen we wear is the righteous acts of the saints. It is our good deeds. We are called to do that. But the church... I love, you know, we were down at the pop-up pantry yesterday, and we are serving, and there's a bunch of us from our congregation that are involved in doing that. I love seeing the church engaged in doing that. But that's not our essence. That's the overflow of our essence. Our essence is bride of Christ. And because we are God's people, because we are joined to him, because he has done all of this and saved us, the overflow is good works. And it's things like that. And if we ever get that backwards, we've lost it all. And so this means that for you and me as well, believers are not just servants of Christ. We are servants of Christ. Paul begins many letters by saying, I'm a, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. But you have to have the understanding you are not just a servant. You are God's beloved. It is not, it's not just that you are loved. It is not possible for a human being to be more loved than you are loved by God. What, what Tony started with this morning, 
when you and I were lost, when we were cut off, when we were in our transgressions and sin, in that moment, at that time, Christ gave himself for us. At the moment when you and I, if we were honest, would have looked and said, I am not worth anything, God said, you are worth everything to me. I will give my son to bring you to myself. So the question, as you sit here this morning, do I know the depth of Christ's love for me and for other believers? I'm not just asking if you can philosophically spout verses. I want you to think. Do you know that tomorrow morning when you wake up, tonight when you put your head on the pillow, you are as loved as a human being can be loved. That, that's a precious truth. Do I know so that when life is not going well, when it's not working the way I would like it to work, I don't have to research the question, I wonder if Jesus stopped loving me yesterday. I never need to worry about that. I am loved. Do you know that down in the core of your being? If you don't, I want you to ask Jesus, show that to me. Let me know that. Let that be the reality that, that drives my very existence, that shapes and forms my very identity. Second question, because it's also knowing that Jesus loves other believers, do I view the church with all her flaws, as the beloved bride of Christ. See, if I don't understand this, then I'm waiting for the church to get to be the bride. I'm waiting for the church to be better. And I can tell you when the church is going to be the church that you and I would like. It's when suddenly we look and the skies are split and Jesus is walking back. That's when it's going to get fixed. And not until then. The church you see is the church you're going to get. And it couldn't be any better because you're part of it. So am I. That's the way it is. We're flawed. We're broken. We're still covered in stain. Jesus keeps cleaning us and we keep running out in our bridal gown back out into the mud. Okay? Renee's done the flowers. Naomi's done the hair. And I keep rolling in the mud and messing it all up. And, and it's hard for Naomi to do all this hair. It's a lot. Do, do I understand that? Do I view the church? Is that the fundamental thing I think about the church is Jesus looks and says, that's my bride. I, I love her. That, that's got to be what goes on at the core of our being. Do I understand that? Because if I don't, I need to let this sink in. I need to meditate on this because this is what keeps me through the flaws and difficulties. And and again, I asked this a little bit last week, but whatever I'm thinking and saying right now, what do my words and actions towards the church indicate in my view of her? If other people listen, do they predominantly hear me speak of the beauty of the church, of the fact that it's Christ's bride, or do they predominantly hear me speak of what's wrong? And it's an occupational hazard. I know what's wrong with a church both this local congregation and all the other ones. I know what's wrong, but is my primary view what's wrong or that, man, Jesus loves his church? 
So that's the first question. And then, or the, the only question, really, we're going to now come to the table. And what we're going to do, again, I want you to pull out your packets. And I remind you, if you haven't done it before, that there's two parts to the little packet. So you're going to peel back the first part that um, just opens up to the bread. So if you're seeing juice, you peel too far. Go back. But as we get ready for the table, I want to remind you that the table is where Jesus feeds and he cares for his church. Remember, Paul said, hey, no, nobody doesn't take care of his own body. We feed and we care for it, and Jesus does the same for the church. Well, here at the table, Jesus feeds and he cares for us. At the table, we celebrate and we receive Jesus' sacrifice and gift of himself for us. And again, I want to remind you, this is a sacrament. And what I mean by that is, Jesus is actually doing something. This isn't about how much I can kind of screw up in my memory and get myself philosophically correct. Jesus meets us at this table. And he gives himself fresh and new. He's not back on the cross or any of that. But he gives himself to us by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, at this table, we give ourselves back to him. Remember, this is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where it's the wedding celebration. And this is kind of a mini thing. Jesus is giving himself to us, and we're going to respond and say, and I give myself back to you. Yes, Lord, I, I take vows back to you. Where you go, I will go. I, I want to be with you. That's what this table is about. So this morning, I want to encourage you, come, be fed, be received by Christ, and then give yourself back to him. So let me begin with a prayer, and then we'll have the words of institution. O bride of Christ, the Lord has prepared his table for all who love him and trust in him alone for their salvation, for all who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and who desire to live in obedience to him as Lord. If this is you, you are now invited to come with gladness to the table of the Lord to receive strength from him today as we look forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I will add, until the one that's serving you will be Jesus Christ himself at his wedding supper. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit. Meet us now at your table. 
Lord Jesus, in this bread, we recognize that you gave yourself for us. Living a sinless life in our place. Lashed and broken for our healing. Dying a cursed death for our sins. And in taking this bread, we profess that you still give yourself to sustain us each and every day. You are the bread of life, and we draw our life from you. Friends, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you shed your blood to seal the new covenant, which was far better than the old covenant. In it, you have forgiven our sins, put your laws in our minds, and written it on our hearts. You have taken us to yourself to be your people and your bride. And so in taking this cup, we renew our covenant vows. You are our bridegroom, our Lord, our God. We love you and we will follow wherever you may lead. Friends, take and drink the cup of life. Why don't we stand for the closing prayer and benediction? And I encourage you to join in with me uh, in praying along. Holy Trinity, you are our God, and we are your people. Father, from before all ages, you chose us as your own. Not because of our works, but solely because of your grace. Lord Jesus, you came from heaven and sought us to be your holy bride. And with your own blood you bought us, and for our life you died. Holy Spirit, when we were dead in transgressions and sin, you washed, you renewed, you regenerated us, making us alive in Christ and making us part of the people of God. Our triune God, you have loved us with an everlasting love. We are your people in creation and redemption. We are your people now and in eternity. We are your people and we gladly cling to and love you. Lord, empower us this week so that we might keep our vows to you, loving you with all our heart, soul, and mind, obeying your will, walking in holiness, for you are worthy. We ask this through Christ our Savior, Lord and bridegroom. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Go forth knowing you are loved, full of God's blessing, and be a blessing to others. Amen.
Amen. Thanks to everyone. We look forward to seeing you next week. We'll be here. Remember, bring whatever is comfortable. Glad to worship together. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.